0: to the third episode of PHPod season four. I'm your host, Kara Schmidt. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Montero, an indigenous public health practitioner and educator, as well as an alum from Boston University School of Public Health. She's here to discuss the topics of food sovereignty and indigenous perspectives on food and how it is connected to cultural preservation and revitalization. So as we get started, uh, right around the corner uh, is the Thanksgiving holiday. And back in 2020, you wrote a viewpoint for Boston University discussing Thanksgiving but from an indigenous perspective and highlighting that for some indigenous communities, it is a national day of mourning. Can you share with me a little bit about what you wrote in that piece and maybe a little bit about your own views of the Thanksgiving holiday? Are these traditions that you grew up with?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I always add the context whenever I speak with anybody that I grew up in a mixed household and my mother's Cape Verdean, my father is the one who carries the Wampanoag line. So I, I grew up with Thanksgiving kind of in the modern traditional sense, like everybody else with dinner and family and, you know, just the gathering and really the fellowship of like spending time with family. And as I've gotten older, and I've understood more. I think I'm still trying to figure out what Thanksgiving means for me in the future or, you know, what that'll mean for like my family and like my children. But yeah, I grew up with like the American version of Thanksgiving, kind of like everybody else. And the day of mourning was something that I knew about, but not something that we actively participated in. And the article was in part a piece of resistance, which is what a lot of my writing tends to be, and I just wanted to raise the question mark. When I wrote the article, I wasn't expecting for people to throw away their Thanksgiving plans and abandon their turkeys and being like, "No, we are not doing this anymore." But I just wanted to raise the question of like, we we talk about like the one percent as like socioeconomic status, but we never talk about like the one percent of the folks who are in the margins, Mm -hmm. what that means. And that was really what I wanted the reader to get out of that. I just, I thought it was so important, especially during this time, there was the fight to acknowledge Indigenous Peoples Day Mm -hmm. instead of Columbus Day as well. And I was like, I just, I think that this is so ridiculous. And I just wanted people to take a second and be like, okay, what does this actually mean? So for the day of mourning, I think that's a personal thing to the folks who acknowledge and actively practice that. For some Indigenous folks, they fast during the day instead of feasting. They are in service to community. They volunteer somewhere or they just gather, they do ceremony. And it's, it's going to look different across the board. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think it was right for me to speak on that. For yeah. me, it was just to like put it out there and say, hey, there's a different perspective that is very active. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this will spark a journey of learning that will turn into action. Mm -hmm. And it it may look different than what the day of mourning looks like, but I wanted it to be a catalyst for some sort of action in the future. Do you think it's
0: important for non-Native people to kind of shift their views of Thanksgiving and to acknowledge the historical violence that holiday was born from, as well as the current harm felt by Native nations today?
1: I think it's important for everybody to do a little digging into all holidays and traditions, I think it's important for us to understand why we do what we do and not to do things blindly. Mm -hmm. And that's like a journey, right? So I think a lot of people think that, you know, be an ally or to be a supporter or to be in solidarity with Indigenous people means that you have to do like a specific set of actions. And that's not always the case. I think what I would really want people to know is that like it's a personal journey and you have to do what's right for you. So maybe you don't feel comfortable doing certain things now, but as you progress and as you learn more and as you become in relationship with yourself and with others in the communities that you support, that may shift. So like, I think that's kind of like on a personal level because I I do get that a lot, but I do think it's really important for institutions to acknowledge historical violence, especially when a lot of institutions are built on the ancestral homelands of Indigenous people. So I don't want to go too much off on a tangent, but that's what I feel very strongly about land acknowledgements, right?
0: I'll let you know, we love tangents on this podcast, or at least I love tangents on this podcast. So please continue
1: and, and finish what you were wanting to say. Yeah, I, I think it, for me personally, like I don't do a land acknowledgement on behalf of others unless I know that there's land action, right? So I've been in spaces where it's like, oh, Ryan, you're our Wampanoag person here. Will you read this statement? And if I can't see the clear actions of what you're doing to further the agenda of supporting Native communities and nations, then no. But of course, like a personal practice is that when I'm on other people's homelands, I will acknowledge, like I I will leave a gift and that's my personal practice. But I do think that I hold institutions a little bit to a higher standard because they have more resources, power, and influence than a person who is just on their learning journey trying to figure things out
0: what can larger organizations do to go beyond the seemingly empty words of of land acknowledgements that often feel not very useful and like a empty gesture
1: so usually when i'm consulting organizations i'm like you have to look at what you have the power to do who you have the power to do it with and if there's alignment with what you want to do and Your local Indigenous community, what their need and desire are. But I think kind of the first step is one, acknowledging that we are still here. So everyone can use Google to figure out where your local tribal nation or community is. And then be in conversation and start a relationship. I think where a lot of organizations kind of go left is that they start with the opportunity and not with the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I mean, a million inquiries that happen every day that it's just like, oh, like, let's just see, you know, we have a grant proposal and we need an Indigenous partner or, you know, DEI is like everyone's favorite new buzzword. And without doing the legwork of like, who are these people? What has this community gone through? What are their priorities? And build a relationship to know what they want, what they desire, what they prioritize. And if you are a good fit for them, versus just like i'm a big institution i have money and you should come on to my program and i think that follows along the lines of community-based participatory research in the mm-hmm. sense like some of those core principles of bringing people in during design and the thought partnership versus just like i have the money but it'll be more competitive if we do this or to do something with Indigenous folks as signaling to like, hey, we're woke, like we, we're we doing this. Um, that proverbial kind of like pat on the back.
0: Can you share with me a little bit about your background and your journey to this point in becoming a public health educator and communicator while also currently getting your PhD in sociology?
1: During undergrad, I thought I wanted to run a hospital in my senior year. I was like, I just don't feel like this is Leading me to the impact that I want. I applied to BU for my master's of public health. And I've always had an interest in food, but... There weren't like a lot of classes for me to take <laughs> through the school, so I found other ways to get involved. So I currently sit on the Boston Food Access Council. I got involved with them during COVID. I ended up working for BU for just under four years, and I used my tuition remission to take classes in the gastronomy program, and I got my grad certificate in food studies. And it was through those courses, it was the first time that I was kind of in an intellectual space where different frameworks were thinking about food that wasn't just intervention-based, that wasn't just food access, build it and they will come. It was really more so like the meeting and the social constructions of food and how we navigate those spaces, how we write about those spaces. That really intrigued me. And Dr. Megan Elias, who's the director of that program, one day in passing, she was just like, you ask really great questions. You should teach one day. And I was like, yeah, that would be lovely. i uh, thinking it was going to be somewhere in the future. And then she said it again in class one day. Then I emailed her and I was like, so what did you actually mean by that? And that's how we got to the creation of uh, the Indigenous Food, Cultures, and Communities course. that I ended up teaching. And yeah, I, I was really grateful that somebody trusted me and saw the potential and really cared about Indigenous food. And I guess this is a perfect example, somebody who had the power and the influence to help me get this course up and running and to say, okay, now we have some action behind this. We're not just acknowledging that we're here, but we're teaching our students you know, a little bit about this local history and food as an entry point of understanding the world and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm.
0: So that actually brings me to my next question. As you mentioned, you designed and taught a course at Boston University. Can you share with me a little bit about that course and how you use food as an entry point to educate about indigenous cultural ties to the land, as well as the alarming disparities in food-related chronic diseases and the drivers that contribute to this health crisis? So can you share with me just a little bit about that course and all the things that that entailed?
1: I had never designed a course before, nor had I ever taught, so uh, designing the syllabus was a lot of fun because there's just so many different directions and there is so much to be covered, but what I really wanted to do was I had to make the connections between worldviews and how this plays out in in an Indigenous food system, essentially, because In Western culture, food is so separated from everything else. It's separated from labor. It's separated from consumption. It's separated from grocery shopping. So we had to talk about religion. We had to talk about gender norms and expectations. We had to talk about belief systems and how all of these things are actually tied together. And Food was just the way for me to conceptualize how all of these different things relate to each other. And of course, there were there were some blind spots. A lot of the literature at the point when I was creating the course was very much Canada based. Mm -hmm. But it's important to recognize that different parts of the United States encountered colonization at different points in time from different countries. So I let my students know, hey, like I'm Wampanoag and this is what this means, but it's going to mean something different for an indigenous person in New Mexico or in the Pacific Northwest or in Oklahoma, not only in demographics, but numbers, numbers as in population, as in the cultural meanings of food, the uses of food and spiritual significance as well. Of course, there are some similarities, but there's also differences because Indigenous people are not a monolithic group. So it was a lot to cover. It was very ambitious. Now that I've taught it once, I definitely look forward to revisiting the curriculum and making some tweaks, but it was a really great time.
0: So what was the reception of your course? Was there a large student interest in these
1: topics? I think we started with about 13 people. Not everybody was in gastronomy. We had some archaeology students as well. And then I got some more requests from folks who were outside of the department. And I think that's something that I would love to expand upon in the future. But what really stuck with me and something that I grappled with was the fact that I was teaching a course at an institution where not everybody had access to it. Because I know that there are folks in my own community and just in the area that don't have the tuition money to enroll into a grad course, right? And like that knowledge should be free to them. So that's something that I I struggled with. And I was worried about the reception of the course from my own community. And I was very careful to let it be known I am not teaching cultural practices. I'm not teaching ceremony or spiritual practices. It was very much a bird's eye view of like, here's the foundation. So when you go into the world after this semester and you're engaging in these conversations or this literature or in advocacy or activism or whatever it is, you have some of these connections already made. Like you're not entirely lost. But overall, I think the course was definitely well-received. Can you share with me and our
0: listeners why food is such an important topic and how it can be used to teach and connect to other broader topics such as food sovereignty and the preservation and revitalization of Indigenous cultures?
1: I think sometimes people forget the frame of reference that what is defined as food security today looks and is defined as something totally different as food security then. So if we go back centuries, your whole day was about food. It was about planting, cropping, harvesting, foraging, preparing. And a lot of those cultural practices that were really important to our day-to-day lives were either outlawed or we just weren't allowed to do them. And so part of the cultural preservation and revitalization is about bringing back those practices but you can't bring back those practices outside of context and that is why food is so important you can support an indigenous producer or an indigenous farmer but you'll you'll never really have like a true appreciation for that end product that you are purchasing for consumption if you truly don't understand the labor the knowledge the ceremony The cultural significance that happened, the stories that were told, that were passed down of like how we do things, why we do things into, let's say, this bottle of Indigenous produced, I guess, like maple syrup or this bison meat. And I think that parts of Indigenous culture have been appropriated Mm -hmm. outside of context. So it's like, I think they're just missing like the gratitude of it. And Kind of at the central focus of a lot of, I would say, almost all indigenous cultures is this reverence for the land and for the elements and for our non-human relatives. I feel like the one place where we see that all come together is with food. And it ties to food sovereignty because food sovereignty is essentially the ability for a group to grow and produce culturally appropriate foods as they see fit. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't understand all of these contexts around the food, you're never going to understand why food sovereignty is important. You don't understand the connection to the land. You don't understand the connection to X, Y, and Z and how this really ties into the whole well-being of a person, a community, and a nation. Mm-hmm. So what is food
0: sovereignty? I
1: know that's a topic that a
0: lot of people hear about, uh, specifically in and out of public health spaces, but I don't think a lot of people have a very concrete understanding of what this actually means and what food sovereignty actually looks like.
1: I think it can mean different things for different groups, Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say for indigenous food sovereignty specifically is the ability to Grow your own food, your traditional crops on ancestral homelands, using like the methods and the tools and the resources that we have that are traditional and ceremonial to us. And that can come in conflict when you're talking about whether you want to be certified organic or things are going to be regulated or even like access to land. So you can't really have indigenous food sovereignty without land. Right. So Indigenous food sovereignty and the land back movement are very much closely tied together because you can't have one without the other. Well, can you tell me about the relationship between food
0: sovereignty and the land back movement?
1: Yeah. So the connection between the land back movement and Indigenous food sovereignty is that you can't have one without the other. And the foundational layer that people haven't been exposed to or haven't really learned is that we're this Comes from are the treaties that the US federal government made with tribes at different points in time, and they haven't honored those treaties. It's led to the dispossession of land, of culture. It's led to displacement. And so the land back movement is very much so like, hey, we were here, we had always been here, we can pinpoint when we are forcibly displaced, we can pinpoint when these treaties were made and we are advocating for you to honor those treaties. Of course, land and food as a commodity is a very Western thought. It's not an Indigenous thought. And to circle back to one of the earlier questions, like that's some of part of the foundational knowledge in the course that we talk about, like how to shift your mind from these things as a commodity to I'm in relation with this thing. And we trace back kind of all the way back to religion and different worldviews and perspectives. But fast forwarding, when you don't have that connection, you don't understand that perspective and land is just something to be bought and to be produced and to be sold for a profit. Of course, you're not going to understand the land back movement because the motivations and the quote unquote justifications behind it don't align with your values. So how are
0: you or how do you wish to continue your work around food sovereignty and identity as you are currently pursuing your Ph.D. at Northwestern, as well as further into the future?
1: Yeah, that's a loaded question. So as of right now, I am in week five of my Ph.D. <laughs> program. <up. laughs>
0: maybe maybe asking you about the future is probably not a fair question.
1: I'll give some context. I decided to go into sociology because I felt like it was the one discipline where I could layer this historical perspective while observing the present for the betterment of the future. And so that's kind of how I'm tying in sociology and public health. I love that public health can mean a lot of different things, but what I was seeing In the field, I was like, there's not a lot of literature on Indigenous studies that are from Indigenous scholars on these type of topics. You know, the saying, like, nothing about us without us. And I was like, I think that this is where I can help be a bridge and also serve as, like, hopefully one day in the future or decades in the future, um, my work will provide a literary foundation for Indigenous food studies. And there are a lot of people who do this amazing work, but I'm also very passionate about like writing for the people, mm-hmm. and not writing for other academics. And so I feel a little bit in the minority in that sense. A lot of people who pursue a doctorate, it's like you want to be in the academy. But for me, accountability is to community and the communities that I'm a part of. So I'm very clear that I am not the indigenous food person. Like there are other people in my communities and other communities that can walk you through a forest and be like, Here's this type of tree, and this is what we used it for, and here's the cultural significance, and about the ceremony. I am not that person. (laughs) I am an Indigenous person who studies food, who educates about these foundational pieces to broader audiences. And I think that that's how I can be best in service to my community. One, making sure that they are always included in the conversation to let people know that, hey, Wampanoag people are still here to bring resources to them and to help provide a platform for my community to raise the issues that are important to the collective. So I don't know what exactly that will look like, but I do know that my research interests at this point in time are very much at the intersection of food identity and consumer behavior. Well, again, thank you so much
0: for joining me today. And as we wrap up, how I like to end all of my podcast sessions is with a last sentence from my guest. And that can be whatever sentence you would like to share. It can pertain to what we were talking about earlier. It doesn't have to. It can be a quote, a personal mantra. However, whatever last words you want to leave with our audience, I invite you to share them now
1: to speak to the students. Everybody is figuring it out. Nobody has it figured out ever. We're all just trying our best. And I would say, keep being intellectually curious and to explore those things. PHPod
0: is a podcast brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day, we feature new articles about the state of the population, join the conversation on social media, and subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive your stories of the week delivered to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thank you so much for listening in. See you guys next time.